Our text this morning comes from Matthew, from the Sermon on the Mount. And I wanted to say a few words about the Sermon on the Mount (coughs) as we get started. I was thinking about how to describe the Sermon on the Mount. Have you ever thought about how you would describe the Sermon on the Mount in one word? How would you describe it? Important. Groundbreaking. That's two words. Helpful. Pivotal. Different. Singular. Well, none of those words really do it justice. (coughs) And the work of Jesus in preaching to those people and to us in the Sermon on the Mount is a work setting aside a declaration. In fact, I think of it as the Christian's constitution. Jesus is defining what makes Christians different, set apart, and peculiar. He declares how we are to live, imitating the character and conduct of our Heavenly Father. He defines discipleship to God and to himself. He contrasts that discipleship with what people in the world live like or what the simply religious people look like, work, live like. And so it's completely otherly. Now, how many of you noticed the theme of the song that Dan sang to us this morning? Did you notice the theme? Do you think of that song being a good, a good candidate for a top ten radio station? You're tuning in. You listen to Dan's voice as he sings, and you turn to your wife in the car and you say, Finally, a song about death. I love this song. Why do we love this song? It was a glorious theme, what we heard this morning, wasn't it? We love it because we understand the realities of how we're not really supposed to be comfortable here. And we understand those realities because they've been defined by God to us. And one of the places where they're most clearly defined is in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus describes how our lives are supposed to be. And he gives commands. And if you read through this today, thinking thinking with the mind of many of us in evangelicalism today, you really wonder, does Jesus not know the gospel? Doesn't he understand grace? Look at, he's telling us all of these ways in which we're supposed to live. Declaring to us commands of how we must live. Our text this morning reveals one of the most distinct examples of our expected dissonance from the world. One of the most clear passages in the sermon of how we're supposed to be different, set apart, and otherly. So please stand with me as we read Matthew 5, verses 43 to 48. You have heard that it was said... You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. 
For he causes his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Why does Jesus have to set up such a strong teaching? You know, the people at the end of the sermon, at the end of chapter 7, they say that, uh, they were, it says that they marveled because he taught them as one having authority, not as the scribes and the Pharisees. Well, why did Jesus have to set this thing up? Well, in our, in our text this morning, Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I say to you, and he had said this, I think, three times before that in the text, talking to them about places where they had been misled by the scribes and Pharisees. Misled in that the scribes and Pharisees, when they taught the word of God, they would either not uh, apply it to people's lives in the ways in which God intended that it was applied in order to justify it and protect themselves, or they would teach it in such a way so as to add things to it so that they could justify themselves. And so they had created this, this battery of, uh, this, this pile of teaching that really didn't have the ring of authority or strength or power to it. It was kind of like uh, in your automobile. How many of you have ever seen a corroded battery? And you've seen the pile of white acidic corrosion on the terminal of the battery. And it's, and it's causing there to, to be a, 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 a short right? Because the connection can't be made. The power isn't able to be made because it's been corroded and it's being insulated from from being used. And Jesus was teaching the people and saying, look, these guys, they have taught you this way and they've corroded the teaching of God in order to justify themselves and you're not getting the power. So he just went through and he just kind of cleaned off all the corrosion like when you pour uh, Coca-Cola onto the battery terminal. Have you ever done that? It's a lot of fun. And, and, and all of the acid just, just bubbles right off. It's fascinating. But Jesus just took it and cleaned it right down to the, to, the, to the bare core of God's word immediately with them and made application to them. And so you have heard that it was said is a setup for Jesus to undo the damage done by wicked men seeking to justify their own actions. God's people had been commanded to love their neighbors. And they had not been commanded to hate their enemies. But that's what the scribes and Pharisees had taught them. That's what they had added in order to justify themselves. In fact, specifically in the Old Testament, one example of this is Exodus 23.4. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey wandering away, you shall surely, what? Whip it harder so it goes faster away from him. Stand by and watch, laughing. <laughs> Take a picture. No, what does Jesus say? If you see your enemy's ox or his donkey wandering away, 
you shall surely return it to him. And so they weren't instructed to hate their enemies. They were instructed to specifically treat their enemies the way that they would treat their friends with love. Well, who is an enemy? An enemy is a person that feels hatred for us or fosters harmful designs against us or engages in antagonistic activities toward us, an adversary or opponent. But we think of our neighbor as someone who likes us, who's seeking our good, who's looking to make us better. They're an ally to us, right? Well, (coughs) we have enemies. Why do we have enemies? We have enemies because of who we are. And it's one of two kinds of who we are that, that causes us to have enemies. First uh, Peter 3, uh, 17 says, For it is better, if God should will it, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than doing what is wrong. So he's making a contrast between our suffering for our good behavior or our suffering for our bad behavior. We all of us have had or have enemies that are our enemies because of our bad behavior, Right? And we all have enemies, if we have faithfulness to God at all, we have all had enemies who are our enemies because of our good behavior. Because they see in us the character and conduct of God. And so they hate us because we remind them of that character and conduct. Right? They may not be bothered if we like a song about leaving this world and being with God. They may not be bothered by that, but if we live our lives in such a way that the demonstration of our living brings offense to them, exposes the reality of their rebellion against God, it's a whole different story, and so they become our enemies. But we also have enemies because of our sin. Because when we drive up to the, to the stoplight, and that person in the car next to us who couldn't either drive uh, correctly or the way we wanted them to drive Uh, We pull up next to them and we say, there's my enemy. And we give them the look. Or we give them the finger. Or we honk our horn at them. Shake our head. There's our enemy. And we've made one. Trust me. (coughs) We may have enemies because we're gossips. Thieves, slanderers, or because we're impure and we go from relationship to relationship in impurity, just creating this, this uh, whole list of people that we've, that we've uh, destroyed, satisfying our appetites. There's so many ways that our sin creates enemies in our lives. Well, Jesus in his sermon talks about two people. Two groups of people. And he's given examples of how people in this world treat their enemies and their friends. And first he talks about tax collectors. Well, tax collectors in that time were basically thieves. Um, they, uh, the Jews just hated them because as Jewish tax collectors, they were compromised to the Romans. They would make their money, the tax collectors, by going to your house, and they would go to your house, and they would say, uh, knock on the door, and Lane answers and says, hello. And I would say, hi, Lane, it's me, the tax collector. Let me get my bill out. 
Pull out my bill. Lane, you owe $300. And I might have added $100 to it. Lane wouldn't be able to do anything. I had authority. I had power. I could call the military. And Lane would have to just take my extorting him and pay out the money. And that was tax collectors. Corrupt, corrupt, very corrupt. On the take, all the time. Well, we don't have tax collectors coming to our door, right? Well, you might have been audited. I don't know. But they're even there. Do they? I've never been audited. Don't want to. Do they actually have you write out a check when you're done? Anybody? We don't have this now. They don't come to our door. And so I was trying to think of what would be the equivalent. So what do you think I, I thought of as the equivalent of a group of people that we all look down on because we see them as so corrupt and so on the take and so destructive to our social structure? So who would you think? What's that? Personal injury lawyers. That's exactly right. They're on the back of every Yellow Pages book. The, you know, the most expensive advertising spot. But this is who we think of. This is how tax collectors were thought of. But Jesus says even the tax collectors, even the personal injury lawyers have friends. They have parties. They invite their friends over. And they have enjoyable times. But they don't invite their enemies over. They probably don't invite insurance company representatives over. Right? Another group of people he mentioned are the Gentiles. The Gentiles of his time were just people who did not have the revelation of God. They didn't know what God had said, so they lived in darkness. They had the revelation of creation around them, but they lived in darkness as to the reality of loving your neighbor. So they just did, you know, responsive kind of love. You know, you were nice to me, I'll be nice to you. You were mean to me, I'll be mean to you. And Jesus says, don't be like them. And who are those people today? Well, they're the same people. People who live in darkness. They just live a responsive kind of existence. You're nice to them, they're nice to you. You're mean to them, they're mean to you. Very simple. And Jesus says, no, no, these aren't the people who you're supposed to be like. Anybody could be like those. I'm setting down the whole constitution for who Christians are, who disciples are. I'm laying it out for you. You're going to see how you're going to be otherly when it comes to your enemies. You're not going to live like everybody else lives. You're not going to live responsive. You're not going to live like tax collectors. You're going to live like your father, God, who causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. So what happens? Well, sometimes when Jesus was talking about these things, <coughs> there would be men there who would want to justify themselves, self-righteous men who would want to justify themselves. And one such occasion, a lawyer stood up, and he put Jesus to the test saying, what do I do to inherit eternal life? <coughs> and Jesus lists the commandments. And, Jesus, and the man, and uh, he said to him, you have answered, or I'm sorry, Jesus says, what is written in the law? What is it, how does it read to you? And the lawyer says, well, you love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. 
And Jesus said, you have answered correctly. Go do this and you'll live. And of course, immediately, the lawyer starts to build the corrosive, acidic corruption on the battery terminal because he wants to justify himself. He just told Jesus what he needs to do. Jesus says, you're right. And the lawyer knew enough to know that that was condemning of him, and so he had to justify himself. So he said, oh, well, uh, who's my neighbor? Right away, he's going to fix things and get out from under the pressure. So Jesus tells him his story. He says, a man is on his way down from Jerusalem, and he gets uh, beat up by robbers. And he's laid on the side of the road. He's laying there in his blood, in the mud and the dirt. He's laid there left to die. And the story is saying, presumably, that this man going down from Jerusalem is a Jew. So right away, Jesus says, along comes a priest, and the priest, who's a Jew, sees the man lying there, and the priest says, well, I... You know, I can't be defiled by this bloody man today. I'm I'm trying to keep clean. And I'm busy because I'm an important man. So the priest stays on the other side of the road and passes by the man. And then along comes a Levite. And the Levite says, well, you know, I'm, I'm pretty clean. I'm clean and I don't want to be defiled because I've got work to do. I have service to accomplish. And I'm, and I'm important. My work is busy work. It's important work. And I've got to, <coughs> I've, got to be, <coughs> I've got to be in my station so I can do my work at the right time. And if I stop to do this, I won't get there to get my, my errand done. And I won't get back to be able to do my work. And so he walks on by. And then Jesus says, a Samaritan come, comes by. Now remember the lawyer asked, who is my neighbor? The Samaritan comes by, he sees the man on the side of the road, the Jew, the Samaritan. The relationship between Jews and Samaritans is adversarial. They hate each other. So Jesus says, the Samaritan comes by, he sees the man lying on the side of the road, and he says, okay, I'm busy, I'm on a budget, I don't have much uh, you know, spending money with me. But I can't leave the man laying there. So he goes up and he dresses his wounds and he puts him up on his donkey and he takes him to a hotel and he buys him a room at the hotel. He goes in, makes sure he's settled in well, tells the hotel owner, listen, you take care of him. I'm going to come back. And when I come back, if, if he costs you any more money to take care of, I will pay you for it. Don't even worry about it. I'll be back and I'll pay you for it. So Jesus says to the man, the, the, the lawyer, Which of these men was a neighbor? Was it the priest, was it the Levite, or was it the Samaritan? And the man said, now you have to imagine how he answered this, right? Because he was seeking to justify himself. And you can't imagine that he was thinking, what a thrilling ending to this story. What a fun ending to this story. What a happy ending to the story. No, what he was saying was, the man who took care of him, And you know he went away just like, uh, no possibility of uh, corrupting Jesus, right? The person that you hate, your enemy, is your neighbor. That's what Jesus was saying. The Jew on the side of the road is your neighbor. The Samaritan is your neighbor. 
And so the hero of the story became the enemy of all people to the man on the side of the road. Our culture is finely tuned to the idea of neighbors and friends and enemies. The media instructs us perfectly in the uh, Gentile response uh, attitude toward how we, are, how we work with our enemies. And it grows over time. It changes over time. And <coughs> I want to use this as an illustration an old movie called It's a Wonderful Life. We've all seen It's a Wonderful Life, filmed in 1946, Right? Come on, how many of you have seen It's a Wonderful Life? Okay, Jimmy Stewart. Black and white. So at the end of the movie in It's a Wonderful Life, you have the antagonist, you have the, the bad guy, Mr. Potter, who keeps the $8,000 and sends uh, poor George Bailey on his way thinking about suicide. He's just a, such a wicked, evil man, right? And then George Bailey, forget the theology of it, okay, George Bailey's... A uh, suicide attempt is interrupted, and God delivers him, and he sees, oh, it's a wonderful life. After all, the movie comes to an end. They're all standing around the piano singing Old Ang Zine, and Clarence gets his wings. And that's how the movie ends, right? Right there. And Mr. Potter keeps the $8,000. Nothing happens to him until 1986 when Saturday Night Live does a new ending to the movie. Because we're able to accept what 1946 would have been disturbing and unacceptable. In 1986, we're all expecting that Mr. Potter is going to get, you know, everything beat out of him at the end of the movie. And so that's what they do in Saturday Night Live. They sing Old Anxiety. Uncle Billy comes in. He says, uh, I remember where the money is. Mr. Potter has it. They all run down to the bank. They get this mannequin, and in the show, they're beating him and, you know, doing the pile driver into his body and hitting him with sticks, and that's how the movie ends. And then they sing Old Anxiety. And we accept it because in 40 years, and now 24 more, 25 more, in 40 years and 25 more, uh, we have grown callous to violence and to hating our enemies, and to make sure they get theirs. Even that much more callous than they were in that time. And so we had in our reading this morning, at the beginning of worship, from Psalm 11, the Lord tests the righteous and the wicked, and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. The one who loves violence, his soul hates. But we are finely tuned by our culture. We're finely tuned to make sure that our enemies get their comeuppance. So how do we deal with our enemies today? (coughs) It could be that your enemies are yours because of your sin. It could be that your enemies are yours because you have, in fact, done something godly. And so you may have enemies because you have exhibited God's character in some way. And so how do we deal with these enemies that are ours when we've exhibited God's character in some way? Well, we deal with them like any good, sophisticated, reformed, evangelical in a postmodern day ought to deal with them, don't we? You know, before I get into it much, I want you to consider that we Reformed folks are most like the scribes and Pharisees. 
most likely to be tuned in to the scribes and Pharisees' mindset, most likely to justify ourselves, most likely to find some sophisticated sophisticated way to build a roundabout or a bypass or a great big mound of corrosive battery acid to protect ourselves from the truth of God's word and its implications so that we can justify ourselves. And so we'll use every sophisticated doctrine we can think of, doctrines that are good doctrines, just like the doctrines in the Old Testament that Jesus was repeating were good doctrines. You shall love your enemies. You shall love your neighbors. You shall not commit murder. But they had built over the corrosive coverings, and Jesus Jesus had to uncover them, but we're so capable of doing the same thing. We can uncover those things in a jiffy, or we can cover those things up in a jiffy. Good doctrines like providence and sovereignty and justice and holiness to justify ourselves from touching our enemy as he's laying there in the ditch or as his car has a flat tire or as his battery is dead or you name it, right? All the ways that we can not have to deal and stay on the other side of the street. So what do we do? Well, we do nothing sometimes. We just stand back and do nothing. There's our enemy. He's having difficulty. It's the equivalent of his donkey or his ox running loose. And so we stand back and do nothing. And there we are. Sometimes <coughs> we decide that we're going to deal with our enemies on the bumpers of our cars. So we put a fish. Now, maybe that wasn't us dealing with our enemies, but pretty soon our enemies put a, a fish with legs and the word Darwin inside. And then we have a fish eating the Darwin fish. And then they have a fish stomping the Jesus fish, right? And so we have wars on the bumpers of our cars with our enemies as if this is really doing something. We've done it now. We have zingy retorts that we give. We go to the abortuary and we see the, uh, we're protesting. <coughs> and we see the escorts and they have got this reflective vest on. It says escort. And you got the guard with the gun and you're thinking, He's, you know, you, you think of what's going on there. They're escorting people in to kill their children. The guard is protecting them so they can go kill their children. You, mean, you think of all the kinds of things that are bizarre about the situation that you're witnessing when you're at the abortuary. And so what do you do? You send them a zinger. What are you, the escort of death? Because we can, we're clever, right? We're clever. And we want everybody to know we're clever. We want them to know we're more clever than they are. And so we use retorts and zingers and profound statements so that we can win by our superior wit. I'm walking with David Talcott at the Rally for Life a couple weeks ago. We're in the front of the procession going around the blocks. We get to a stop sign and some college guy hanging out the side of his truck turns the corner in front of us and you F and F and Fers and so I'm standing there, David Talcott's standing there, and I say in my sophisticated reformed way, well there's our tax dollars at work educating 
the future leaders of our country, right? Because that's immediately what my mind wants to do. It it wants to retaliate, report, you know, do something to to hurt back or to to answer back in form. Because I can't say F and F and F -er in front of the Rally for Life line. (laughs) Right? And if I hadn't been preparing for this sermon, I probably would have done nothing further, but my, I was convicted, and I've been very convicted in preparing for this sermon. And so I stopped, and David and I prayed for the man who went by. But I'm telling you, that's not my normal practice of, la- of the last few years. It's not my normal practice. I'm sophisticated. You may not think so. Or we respond with outright hostility to them. Sometimes it's explosive hostility. Sometimes we have the slow burn hostility. Sometimes it's both. We explode and we burn on. And many of you coming in here every Sunday, you have an enemy in this church. Maybe a pastor, maybe an elder, it may be a Titus II woman, it may be somebody that you had some relationship with that you think offended you and fouled your life, and, and so you walk by them and you walk by them carefully just like the, the, uh, the Levite and the priest. They're laying there or they're walking on the other side of the, the aisle, and if, I hadn't made, if we hadn't made the halls in this building so wide, you'd, you probably wouldn't come anymore because you couldn't get far enough away from them when you walked by. And so you avert your eyes, you're just looking like this. And you won't have anything to do with them, because they're your enemy. And God says, we can't be his children if we treat them like that. He says, we can't be his children if that's how we treat our enemies. In our text, in verse 44, But I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. He says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. And if you don't love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, by implication, you are not going to be sons of your Father who is in heaven. There's a lot at stake. This is the Sermon on the Mount. You understand. This is a big thing. It's not a a little thing. It's a big thing. And this is just one little part of the big thing that Jesus is saying to us to say, you are supposed to be otherly, peculiar, different. People are supposed to know that you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, that you are a child of God, that he is your father. And they're supposed to know, in this case, particularly by how you treat your enemies. So how are we supposed to respond? How do we respond to our enemies? Well, <clears throat> going back to First Peter chapter 3, Peter says, to sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead, for you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. So he says you're supposed to give a blessing. 
And I'm thinking about how do we give blessings. You know, at the end of the service, we give a benediction, but we're all ready for it. We're all prepared for it. We've all been trained about benedictions, right? And we're glad that we get blessed at the end of the service. But can you imagine how we would bless people who are cursing us outside this building? How do you bless them? And it's somewhat hollow just to say, God bless you, like we're, you know, they sneezed. You know, they drive by and curse you in your car, in their car. And then you say, well, God bless you. You know, it's, it's, it seems a little hollow, but that's okay. You can say those words, and it's good, and it's appropriate. Say, God bless you. But don't just leave it at that. Because blessing has content. It has action to it. Because love has content, and love has action to it. And this is the heritage of the Good Samaritan. He blessed the man he found laying on the side of the road. But he didn't just say, bless you, and walk on his way. He blessed him by going and binding up his wounds and taking him to the hotel and making sure that he was all right. We don't have the option of bless you and walk on by. We bless and we do. We act because we are called to be like our Father who is in heaven. Not like the tax collectors, not like the Gentiles, but like God the Father in heaven who causes his reign to fall on the just and the unjust. So we act. <coughs> Our love is active. Romans 5.8 But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That was an active demonstration from God to us. No small price to demonstrate his love. The most costly price existing is what he paid to demonstrate his love. We also love them and bless them with a prayer of forgiveness. A prayer of forgiveness. (coughs) This is so important. If you think about Jesus as he is dying on the cross... And, and giving us an example of how to die at the hands of our enemies. What does he say? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Forgive them. They're Gentiles. They're walking in darkness. They're Jews. They're in rebellion. They're my enemies. Forgive them. And Stephen, a little later, preaches... And they, they gnash their teeth after hearing him preach. And they rush him out of town. They want to stone him quick because his preaching to them has made them so angry. His demonstration. You know what Stephen did? He poured coke all over the battery terminal and he washed everything away and exposed them all. And they hated him for it. And then they rushed him out of town and they took stones and they started throwing him at him and throwing him at him until pretty soon he's down on his knees and he's bloody all over. And and then he says, uh, Lord, receive my spirit. But that isn't the last thing he says. (coughs) I was thinking about the, 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 the sequence. And I was thinking, you know, if I'm about to be hit with the fatal rock, What's the last thing I want to do but make sure I've got everything aligned with God and I'm turning my attention, the last thing to him. But what does Stephen do? In, in character of God, with God, 
following God's character and his conduct, Stephen, the last thing he does He said, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. And I have a hard time remembering to pray for the guy that yells at me outside the window of his car. You see? You see how far we are from God's character? How far we're removed from his conduct? How little his word is in us and our actions. This doesn't rule out confrontation. We still have to declare the truth of God. Stephen was declaring it. That's what got him killed. Jesus was declaring it. That's what got him killed. It doesn't doesn't rule out apologetics. It doesn't rule out holy living. All those things have to be done. These are the things that men hostile to God will hate us for. But it rules out retribution. It rules out reviling. It rules out vengeance. It rules out a jab for a jab. It brings us into conformity with the character and conduct of our Heavenly Father. And so at the last, when Jesus finishes this little segment of the sermon, he says, Therefore, be ye perfect. Even as your heavenly Father is perfect. When it comes to loving our enemies, particularly in this text, Jesus is saying, we must be like God. And so how will we be like God? Think about the glorious life that God's provided for us. If you Go home today and read the Sermon on the Mount at lunch. Read it. Read the Sermon on the Mount. And just think about the reality of the provision for otherliness and, and uh, differentness, if that's a word, that God has made for his people in this world. And how it creates in us faith and hope and expectation for a time when there won't be any pressure for being that way, but that we'll actually be present with him, rejoicing in the presence of God. And that this is what God has provided for us in Christ. And that he gives us the power to live it by his Holy Spirit. That we can love our enemies. That we can actually pray for the guy. That we can actually help him change his tire. That we can actually help him get to the hospital. That we can, whatever it is, fill in the blank. That you can love the person in this church that you think of as your enemy. The person that fouled your life and messed everything up. That you've held a burning resentment towards for a long time that you can actually have the power of God to say, I forgive them, I want to love them. And then demonstrate it. Bless them with action. Don't do the Bill Gothard thing. Don't go to them and say, I just want to tell you I forgive you for what you did to me so long ago. Because they're just going to stand there and go, go to them and live like you've already forgiven them. And love them. Treat them as your brother. As your sister. God has made provision for us to do this. Jesus has called us to do it. We are able to do it. In his power and in his grace. Let's do it. Let's love our enemies. Now would you pray with me.